HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. This episode is brought to you by Eat Okra, your guide to Black-owned restaurants. Download the Eat Okra app on your smartphone today. Welcome to another edition of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. Thanks for joining me as we explore the food of the American Midwest. Today's stop, Amish country. To tell us more about the Amish and Mennonite communities and their food, we are joined by Steve Nolt, Professor of History and Anabaptist Studies at Elizabethtown College. He is also a senior scholar at the college's Young Center for Anabaptist and Pietist Studies. I hope I got that right. Or Pietist Studies. I'll find out in a minute. And the author or co-author of 14 books on Amish and Mennonite history and culture. So he is a wealth of knowledge. Steve, we're happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Um, So I want to start out, Steve, if you could give our listeners uh, a brief 101 course on who the Amish and Mennonites are for those that aren't familiar and maybe what are some of the some of the major differences between groups. Sure. Uh, So these are uh, Christian groups with roots in 16th century Europe. They were uh, dissenters who broke with the state church system of the day, uh, rejected infant baptism, emphasized the church as a, a separate pacifist people. Uh, that that dissent uh, made them quite unpopular with both the uh, formally recognized uh, state churches and with uh, political and, and civic uh, leaders of their day. So they were often uh, often persecuted and ended up uh, in some cases living in in kind of more remote uh, rural parts of of, of the uh, the Rhine Valley. There were some 
Um, some Mennonites who ended up uh, living in more prosperous areas in the Netherlands and, and, and taking on a more uh, urban life. But uh, for the most part, these were uh, more agriculturally um, mm-hmm. centered peasant, uh, peasant folks. Um, the, the groups, um, as, as I said, as dissenters, they, they don't have, uh, they, they didn't, they didn't have state church backing. And so that meant they were often, um, very locally, uh, organized. They didn't have large, you know, um, church structures or organizations or bureaucracies. And so groups developed differently in different places. And, mm-hmm. um, one, uh, one leader named Jacob Amon, uh, in the late 1600s, um, his, uh, community became associated with his name and became known as the Amish. And as I as I said, uh, these are groups who um, understood the church as a uh, a separate people, a people who who were uh, kind of called called by God out from mainstream society. But of course, the question is, well, what does separate mean? How how separate is separate? And Jacob Amon and the Amish tended to place more of an emphasis on on uh, on separation, not necessarily seclusion or total self-sufficiency, but but more of an emphasis on separation. And so we see this among the Amish uh, today, um, dressing in very distinctive dress, um, use of horse and buggy transportation, um, limits on, on uh, different technologies that they use, although the exact nature of those limits vary from, uh, from one local community to another. Mennonites, on the other hand, are um, a bit more uh, diverse. There are would be some Mennonite communities that, to the casual observer, might appear very much like the Amish, um, people using horse and buggies and, and dressing uh, very uh, distinctively. But um, there are also many Mennonites whose, um, whose day-to-day uh, way of life, dress, appearance, level of education would be similar to that of other um, you know, sort of um, mainstream middle-class Americans. And so you would find Mennonite churches in Columbus, Ohio, or, or Cleveland, Ohio, or Detroit. You'd find Mennonite churches with African-American members and, and uh, Latino members and so on. So there's, there, there tends to be more diversity both in lifestyle and in, in location among Mennonites today. The Amish uh, remain a, a very much a, a rural people. That's uh, a very good uh, Cliff Notes version of uh, a very complex um, uh, history of of these groups that some are familiar with and, and many, many are not. Many have this just very generic idea of what an Amish is, don't even know Mennonites exist. So I appreciate you providing a little bit of context. Uh, this is not a history show. It's a food show, although it's a bit of food and history. Um, so I would like to talk about how the Amish and Mennonite communities came to the Midwest and what kind of food traditions they brought with them. Okay, so um, the first uh, Amish and Mennonites coming to North America came to Pennsylvania, mostly in the 1700s, handful in the late 1600s. But they come to Pennsylvania in the 1700s. And then, um, like many other um, Europeans, uh, uh, descendants of, of European colonists, in the 1800s, uh, some of their their descendants begin moving westward, and so the first wave of uh, Mennonites and Amish in the Midwest were descendants of those who had arrived in Pennsylvania in the 1700s, and then start moving westward in the 1800s, settling in a band from basically Ohio to uh, Iowa. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, after about 1815, then there's a second wave of folks who are coming directly from Europe. There's another wave of migration. Um, 
in which Mennonites and Amish come from from Europe, and uh, in some cases they arrive by ship in in New Orleans and um, go up the Mississippi River to Illinois and and Ohio. Uh, others come uh, to Baltimore and go further west, but uh, in any case, they also uh, settle from again mostly uh, Ohio to Iowa in different communities. So, for example, in in Ohio, uh, in eastern Ohio, in Holmes County, Ohio, um, almost all of the Amish there are descendants of the, um, the, the Pennsylvania immigrants of the 1700s. Um, if you go to uh, Bern, Indiana, in Adams County, Indiana, uh, the Amish folks there are almost all descendants of, of immigrants from, uh, from the 1830s to the 1850s who came directly uh, from, from Europe. So as you move around the Midwest, you find, uh, you find different, uh, um, different migration histories. Um, all of these folks are bringing with them um, probably their, their, their foodways from um, that they're either bringing from Europe or in the case of those um, coming from Pennsylvania, um, something that, that would be um, sort of broadly understood as Pennsylvania German or often called Pennsylvania Dutch um, uh, foodways in Pennsylvania in the 1700s. Mennonites and Amish were a small minority of all of the German speakers um, in, in southeastern Pennsylvania. And so there was a fair bit of mixing and melding um, among um, not just Amish and Mennonite, but also uh, German Lutheran and Reformed and, and Catholic folks, not necessarily religious mixing, but um, cultural mixing among those who shared uh, shared the, the common language that that is called Pennsylvania German or popularly called Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, and so though there's also that wider tradition that's represented by um, by Mennonites and Amish who moved from Pennsylvania to the Midwest. One group that I was unaware of, uh, we often hear about, you know, the uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch, which are obviously, as you said, not Dutch. They are German. Uh, but I was really surprised to find out that there were Russian Mennonites in the Dakotas. I, I This was something that never occurred to me. I knew nothing about it. And I'm sure that the listeners would love to hear more. Yeah, so there's uh, there's then this whole other uh, story of of Mennonites um, coming to North America that's that's uh, quite different both geographically and in terms of of time. Um, in the 1870s, after after the Civil War, about 18,000 Mennonites uh, coming from uh, what was then the Russian Empire settled in the U.S. Plain States and Canadian Prairie Provinces, especially Manitoba, but uh, Kansas. Uh, Kansas through the Dakotas uh, and and Manitoba. There, as the backstory to their migration uh, to to North America is uh, a story of migration every uh, several generations from the late 1500s on that had taken them first from the Netherlands to uh, what's now Poland, um, and then into what's now Ukraine. And at uh, each of those um, each of those places, uh, they adopted or adapted um, new foodways uh, from their neighbors, um, picked up some things, adapted some things, and carried that sort of rich and varied tradition from uh, from from uh, Northern Europe and um, uh, Poland and Ukraine uh, to North America. Um, and so it's it's something that. Um, for a for a very much a, a migrant people, so like theologically, they believe they're they're a, a separate people as, as Mennonites. But but uh, in terms of this kind of perpetual migration, um, they uh, food was also one of the things that was very important in terms of their 
their identity, um, both preserving their food traditions, but also uh, adapting them and 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 um, picking up different things along the way as they as they moved along. How did they adapt to the Dakotas, for example, uh, bringing all these different food ways from uh, you know what is now modern day Ukraine or Poland, uh, and adapting them to the American Midwest and prairie states? When the Mennonites arrive um, on the on the plains in the 1870s, one of the things that they um, that they brought with them and contributed to American agriculture was bringing what they called uh, turkey red wheat or uh, hard winter wheat, um, which um, other agricultural historians could could uh, talk more about uh, how that um, revolutionized um, wheat uh, wheat growing uh, in the in the plain states, but. Uh, that was one of the one of the things that they brought with them uh, from from Ukraine that helped to transform uh, agriculture and um, the the kind of wheat <laughs> and flour that many of us um, still eat today. Um, they they also continue their uh, food traditions, um, and and one of the ways that that uh, that that uh, even to, to this day in Freeman, South Dakota, there is an annual uh, food festival uh, in the spring that's called Schmeckfest. And um, uh, people who grew up there and maybe haven't uh, lived there for many years uh, come back uh, to participate, celebrate um, a lot of it's sort of a community festival, but with a big emphasis on food. And so among the things that they um, that they make and, and eat would be uh, Ferenica, which would be like a cottage cheese filled dumpling served with uh, meat gravy, um, uh, certain kinds of breads, particularly um, uh, Zvibak. Uh, Plumamus, which is um, uh, like a fruit, dried fruit um, uh, sauce, uh, fruit fruit sauce, um, and a number of other things that are that that uh, uh, continue to be to be very popular and, and well beloved in these communities. I definitely have to take a pilgrimage out to the Dakotas for the Schmeckfest because I am I am infinitely curious. Uh, particularly since in my corner of the Midwest, I am more familiar with um, Old Order Amish and their traditions and in, in food um, as they live alongside of us, just 30 minutes away. Um, and and um, they, at least in my experience, um, like many Amish and, and Mennonites, have uh, some significant meals uh, in their culture. And um, I know one of them is the post-church service dinner. Um, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, the Amish uh, worship in their, um, gather for worship and meet in members' homes. That is, they don't have church buildings, a few exceptions to that. But for the most part, um, the Amish don't build church buildings, but um, all the members of a particular church district, uh, what you know, we in other traditions you might call a congregation or a parish, but the the, the local church, um, you all get together and meet in someone's home. And these worship services on Sunday mornings uh, rotate from one home to another. So people take turns hosting um, church. There may be 150 to 175 people uh, in your local church district, and maybe more if there are visitors. Um, from a neighboring Amish church district, for example. Um, so you have a lot of people. They um, come to your house, or maybe you meet in the basement of your house, the first floor in a shop or a barn. And so in preparation for hosting, you'd move the furniture or whatever is in whatever uh, space you're using and uh, set up, um, arrange benches. Um, and so every church district has a, a set of uh, benches 
uh, a set of, of uh, hymn books and a set of um, plates, cups, uh, coffee cups, uh, cutlery for serving a meal. Uh, and so th- these are this is really the only property that an Amish church has. You don't have a building. You have benches and hymn books that move around and then all this stuff for uh, for um, serving meals. Because when the church service is over, church service lasts about three hours from roughly nine to noon. Um, when the church service uh, concludes, everyone stays for a noon meal and actually stays all afternoon for, uh, for um, um, informal uh, visiting. And the benches are transformed into tables. There's a way in which they have um, metal hardware that, that, uh, that can be kind of hooked together. And so benches can be uh, set on top of one another and, and put together to make a table. And then other benches are, are pulled up next to them. And so you can quickly transform the space um, in which a lot of people have been sitting in close quarters into a series of uh, long tables with um, with benches on either side, spread tablecloths, and begin um, seating and and serving food. Um, families don't sit as uh, nuclear families; rather, they they eat in age and gender cohorts, with the oldest mm. people uh, first. Um, and uh, these meals are. Um, fairly simple um, meals. They're filling, but simple meals. Uh, and the meal is um, almost always the same. So as you're hosting church, it's a lot of work to uh, host church and so uh, and, and to provide the meal. So to, to ease that burden, the meal is relatively simple and always the same. So you know what to do. Uh, helps with helps with planning. Uh, and there's also no, you know, there's no um, no need to kind of compete or outdo anyone else with what you're serving because it's it's a set meal. From one community to another, the menu can vary uh, a little bit, but it typically is a lot of homemade bread with um, spreads. One of the uh, one of the common uh, bread spreads, and this surprises people sometimes because it it seems not not very uh, traditional. But uh, a common spread would be peanut butter that is mixed with um, with marshmallow fluff, so it makes a, a sweet uh, a sweet. Uh, light, uh, very sort of spreadable um, uh, peanut butter um, peanut butter spread uh, on 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 homemade bread. There are also lunch meats and cheeses, um, pickles, pickled vegetables of different kinds, often bowls of pretzels, um, usually pie for dessert, a variety of pies, and uh, coffee. So it's um, it's uh, it's a cold meal uh, again in most places. Uh, and and um, uh, fairly fairly simple, but there's always lots of food, and so it uh, it can be um, pretty filling. Um, and uh, people sit around and and uh, spend the rest of the afternoon visiting. That that sounds like a, quite a production, even if it is a, a cold meal. There's one other uh, significant meal I do want to touch on before I let you go, and that is the fundraising dinner. Um, that's something that I've actually, I've had an opportunity to attend Amish fundraising dinners in Northeastern Ohio. I know they vary from community to community. Um, but I think it's an important story to be told of why, uh, Amish communities do these fundraising dinners and what is served there. Yeah. So, um, one of the ways that, uh, that Amish churches, um, understand the, the, the church as your as as your primary community uh, is that uh, Amish church members, um, as a rule, don't participate in wider commercial or public insurance programs. Uh, so when there are health costs and so on, rather than white, relying on you know commercial insurance companies or relying on 
uh, on the government. They believe it's important to you know rely on one's neighbors and and church for bearing those um, costs. And um, so their their free will offering system uh, helps to uh, defer a lot of, of medical costs. But uh, there there are also uh, medical bills um, nowadays, and and of course some in the past that are quite extraordinary. And um, they've turned to a number of of um, fundraising, uh, social, uh, social celebratory, uh, events that also raise money for, um, uh, paying for, you know, extraordinary medical expenses. And, uh, again, despite the fact that, that, um, that, uh, they're interested in, in, uh, you know, having the, the church as the primary community, which they are, uh, these meals are also open, uh, open to others, open to neighbors. So if you've uh, experienced one of these, um, you know, that it was not an exclusively uh, Amish event. So a lot of other non-Amish neighbors uh, may attend as well. And so uh, these um, meals are also times of, of fellowship and conversation with with neighbors and you know, again, what is served, again, is going to vary a little bit from, from place to place in uh, northern Indiana, where I lived for about 23 years. One of the very common fundraising meals was called a haystack dinner. Uh, and <clears throat> it would be, um, you would you would start um, with a, an empty plate and move down uh, a, a table with, you know, sort of all the ingredients and you'd, you'd build, you'd build your meal. And I guess that was the idea of the the uh, haystack language, but uh, usually begin with uh, um, corn chips, and uh, and then this might surprise you next, but uh, hot white rice, um, and then there would be um, lettuce and and tomatoes and onions, almost maybe like you were making a taco salad. Um, there would be some cases um, a meat sauce on top, in other cases maybe more of uh, just a, a taco sauce. Um, so it was a it was a, a large. Uh, some people would look at it and say, yeah, it's sort of like a, a version of a taco salad, but it had the had the um, uh, white rice uh, there as one of the one of the base uh, ingredients. But you'd end up with at the end of the at the end of the the table with a large plate of food, and then there would be uh, various uh, drinks, whether whether lemonade or or coffee, uh, and then uh, then usually a lot of good desserts as well. Always. Pie uh, and desserts are always something that at least I have consistently associated with the Amish uh, community. I've never experienced a haystack uh, dinner, even though I, I have been to some of these fundraisers in my area. So that shows just the differences regionally uh, across uh, Amish foodways in the Midwest. Uh, Steve Nolt, thank you so very much for joining us today. You're welcome. We'll be right back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Eat Okra, your guide to Black-owned restaurants. If you'd like to support local Black-owned businesses, or maybe just find a new favorite place to eat, download the Eat Okra app now. Whatever city you find yourself in, Eat Okra will connect you to hundreds of Black-owned restaurants, bakeries, cafes, food trucks, bars, and wine shops. Download the Eat Okra app on your smartphone today to get started. Our next guest is going to bring us further into the Amish kitchen and important Amish celebration meals. 
Karen Johnson Weiner is a distinguished service professor of anthropology emerita at SUNY Potsdam in Potsdam, New York. She has written a number of books on Amish culture, including a new book called The Lives of Amish Women from John Hopkins University Press. Karen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for asking me. Well, I love this topic, and I've said this throughout this episode. Growing up in northeastern Ohio, I have grown up alongside of uh, Amish communities, and so I've always had a great deal of, of interest in uh, Amish and Mennonite foodways and their celebrations. And that's one of the things we're talking about today, uh, as well as how uh, Amish food and the Amish kitchen has evolved or not evolved. Uh, And I'd like to start there. Uh, And since you have written a book about the lives of Amish women, I thought you would be a good person to talk about how the Amish kitchen has changed through the years, particularly when it comes to things like food preparation uh, and and that sort of thing, as it varies uh, across the different types of Amish and Mennonite communities. Um, Well, kitchens have changed a lot simply because the Amish have changed a lot. Um, and, and, and so, you know, for example, as, as you move from a, a wood fired stove to do your, your meal prep into, you know, using a, a gas stove, or as you go from having all of your foods canned or preserved at home to having refrigerator freezers, your food preparation naturally changes. Um, if you look at the most conservative Amish, um, you know, who are producing much of their own food, not all of it. They're they're not shopping for very much. They're making all of their own bread still. They're preserving their vegetables. They're preserving their fruit um, by canning it. Um, they're preserving their meat by butchering it themselves and salting or smoking or or canning it. And that's quite different if you move, you know, if you were to go into a kitchen in the most progressive Amish community where there would be a freezer. And because there's um, more disposable income, the, the, the family is entrepreneurial or, uh, um, or members work for wage labor outside of the home, there's more disposable income. And so they can be purchasing foods. They can purchase much more than, of what they're using than the most conservative. They're not doing nearly so much canning. Um, they're not doing their own butchering anymore. And so meals will will simply vary quite a bit more because the kitchens in which they're they're being prepared are are different, and the circumstances of those preparing them are different right and and I want to stick on this because I think that it's an important uh, cultural distinction um and and it has a i think a specific impact on family dynamics, so you talked a little bit about how uh there are some Amish families that maybe are more entrepreneurial or maybe uh, a bit more liberalized, so to speak. I've seen this again in some of the communities around me where you see Amish teens uh, behind the counter at a local fast food place or at Mary Uter's Amish kitchen in the bakery. Uh, so you see these folks being able to earn outside of uh, the traditional, uh, outside of the home and some of the traditional activities, meaning they have more disposable income, maybe meaning that they're spending less time doing food prep and preservation. So how does that impact the family dynamics and the passing down of food traditions when families may not be spending the same kind of time 
doing those kind of food-related activities. It has an enormous impact. In the most conservative communities, food preparation is, is very much a communal effort. You've got you know, everyone, the little children pressed into service to bring wood in, to feed the, the fire in the wood stove. You've got, you know, mothers and daughters working together to prepare everything. And so daughters are learning from their mothers how to cook, how to prepare the same meals their, their mothers did. And, and what you find then are, is meals, is that meals, as you move from, say, one very conservative household to another in the same community, they're going to be the same. Um, and, and daughters are, are learning the same kinds of cooking. And, you know, when, when a couple gets married, husbands and wives have expectations about what they're going to eat. And they're going to be the same as both of them separately grew up with because they grew up doing the same things in the same kind of household. When you reach or when you go into communities in which, um, you know, uh, the wife the mother maybe maybe she has a job, so she's working outside the home. Um, when the father is working outside the home or working in his own business, and the mother has her own business, they're not spending nearly as much time doing food prep. Daughters aren't working so much with mothers to learn food prep. They don't need to do as much food prep because more of their of of what they're eating is being purchased and not not preserved at home. Food preparation becomes a much more individualistic kind of event. And you don't have you don't have young girls growing up to do things exactly like their mothers did in the same way. And so you also have more variation than, uh, you know, a, a couple gets married. They may come from homes where, where meals were completely different because the circumstances under which they were prepared were different. Give me some examples of, of that variation. So if you are uh, in a home that may have this more consistent meal prep where mothers are handing those, those food traditions down to daughters, what you may see in uh, being eaten in that household versus maybe one of these other communities where people are working outside of the home. And as you said, it's a more individualistic uh, experience in, in food preparation and eating. What are those differences? Well, for example, in a very conservative home, everybody's butchering at the same time. So you're having the same kinds of meats. You're, you're having the same kinds of preparation of meat to preserve it, which means that when that meat is served, you're pretty much having the same meals. You know, people are making their chicken the same way. People are, are making the same kinds of pies because they've, they've all preserved the same fruits that have come in. Um, and, and they've learned to make those pies in particular ways. So I can go to, to one very conservative home and be offered an apple pie. And that feeling is going to be made in exactly the same way as at the next home where I'm offered a piece of apple pie. And I'm not saying that that all cooks are equally good. The two apple pies might not taste, one might not be as tasty as the other, but the filling's going to look exactly the same and the dough's going to be rolled out exactly the same. And, and it's because they've all learned to make the same kinds of things in the same way. So, you know, I, I can expect that I can get, um, 
you know, I'm not going to get a cold cut sandwich at at a conservative home. They're going to be a home cooked meal, and it's because mom's home and the daughters are home and everybody's preparing it together. And I can have pretty much the same meal at any conservative home in the same community that I go to. If I'm in a very progressive community, um, mothers have shopped for for much of what they may be serving. Um, they maybe learn to prepare it in different ways. You um, may be relying on, you know, whatever happened to be in the refrigerator that day. Um, they're, they're not the same kinds of expectations for what you will find when you go into a more cons- more progressive film. Uh, this is, I, I'm just fascinated by these differences. And I'm curious to know, you mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation about when couples get married, they bring in certain expectations from their upbringing, which is, you know, customary across pretty much all cultures. Uh, but because there seems to be variations between more traditional um Amish food ways versus those that might be more liberalized and and have more choices. Uh, I'm curious to learn more about something that is, I think, um, a celebratory icon in uh, Amish tradition, and that is the Amish wedding dinner. I want to learn more about what gets served at these Amish wedding dinners and variations that may occur across the culture as well. Just as we've been talking about the day-to-day differences, what are those differences in the context of an Amish wedding dinner? So first, let's set the stage. If we were at an Amish wedding meal, what would we see, smell, and taste? Well, it would depend on what kind of church community you were in. Um... I've been to very conservative Schwarzenegger weddings, and there the the meal is is a kind of it's chicken. Often it's chicken that's been canned, so it's been cooked in advance, or even if it's it's bought in advance, it's going to be rolled in butter, rolled in crumbs, layered and baked. And I have to tell you, it's the best chicken in the world. Um, and you're going to have that with mashed potatoes. You're going to have fruit and bowls. You're going to you're going to start your meal with bread and slices of cheese and there will be fruit and, you know, a salad, mashed potatoes, gravy, noodles, and this chicken. And every single wedding that you go to in that community will have exactly the same menu and you will have exactly the same kinds of cakes served at the supper and you will have exactly the same kinds of pies served after the main meal following church. If you go to other communities, you may, different communities will have their own traditions. So in Lancaster County, you're going to get a a chicken roast. Um, And and you can count on there being um, mashed potatoes and gravy, bread with different spreads, um, you know, something they call an Indiana salad, which is green jello with pineapples and cream and Cool Whip mixed in, um, which is you'd never see at a Schwarzenegger wedding. But then I've also been to a, a wedding where they served barbecued chicken. Now, the commonality in all of those things is chickens, um, which is why the Schwarzenegger's call weddings Hingelfleisch frolic, a, a, a party where you eat chicken. A frolic is a, a work party. And so your work is eating chicken. Um, 
but each community would have its own. There would be, again, a bit more variation, a bit more independence going into the, the menu, the more progressive you are um, than in the more conservative. I, now, I, there's something else that I have heard about that maybe you can talk a little bit more about, and that is something called a wedding trailer that apparently pops up at some of the more uh, liberal, so to speak, uh, Amish wedding celebrations. Mm-hmm. A wedding trailer, it's, a, it's, it's an older feature out in, uh, out in say, northern Indiana. Um, basically, a wedding trailer is like a traveling kitchen with freezer facilities. Um, it comes with dishes. In the most conservative communities, when, you, when you're going to have a wedding, well, nobody has that many dishes. So you end up borrowing dishes from your neighbors, um, from extended family members to have enough plates, to have enough um, pots and pans to cook with, to have enough glasses and so on. Some groups will have started using paper plates, but you know, most want to have real dishes. The wedding trailer supplies that. You you rent it in advance. It comes with dishes, glasses, silverware, the, the whole shebang. You can cook in it, which is important because, you know, it just it expands the the facilities for preparing the meal. And in more progressive communities, as weddings have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger because People have more disposable income. They can travel more easily and so on. Um, you need more facilities to cook more meals. Um, so so that's, it's been a feature in, in the Midwestern, in some of the Midwestern communities longer. It's now moving into Lancaster County. I think you, there, there are some in, in Ohio among the more liberal. In Lancaster County, it's replacing um, they used to have chests you could rent and the chests would be full of dishes and so on. And the wedding trailer is now replacing that. And it, it means it, it, it means something else too. It means that you have to um, start planning for the wedding long before it's actually time for the wedding because you have to rent the trailer. And that means if you know when the date's going to be, you can make sure you have that wedding trailer. And, and that's another change because traditionally... Nobody knew you were going to have a wedding until the couple was published in church. And now if you're renting the wedding trailer months in advance, people are going to know. So, so it's, it's, an, it's an innovation that speaks to basically people no longer doing the weddings all themselves at home with just the community. Well, that's a, that's a great place for, for us to end our conversation because I, I think it's just so interesting to hear about how there's evolution even in a community like the Amish and the Mennonite where I think most of us uh, out from outside of, of those communities see um, Amish and Mennonites, Amish in particular, old order Amish as stagnant, as stuck in the past. Um, as just very traditional, whether it is their food ways or their just general way to, way of life. And what you are telling us is from the kitchen to the wedding celebration, there is still variation and evolution, even in some of the most traditional communities uh, in the Midwest. So uh, I appreciate your willingness to share your expertise, Karen. Thank you for, for being with us today. Thank you for having me.
Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.